We're in the book of 2 Corinthians, the issue of discouragement. Discouragement is endemic to life. It's part of living in a fallen world. We, we grow discouraged. We grow downhearted. We grow chagrined to the things around us. But imagine this. Imagine going to a city as a cultural worker, missionary, apostle, pastor, and you go into this city and you labor for 18 months and you preach the gospel Sunday after Sunday, or really Saturday after Saturday in the synagogue and then from house to house. And the Lord tells you in the midst of all this, don't be concerned, I have many people in this city. And as you labor and work, you see a church birthed and you see a deep love and affection grow up among the people and between you and the congregants. And so you leave the city after a year and a half feeling they're in good shape and right after you leave. A group comes in and they start preaching a different gospel. And they start belittling you as a leader in the way you spoke and even the way you look. And they preach not the gospel, but they say, really, if you want to be right with a God who is, is self-effort, it is self-work, it is not the cross. And so, you're discouraged. And that's what happened with, to Paul in Corinth. He's discouraged. In fact, it says in chapter 7 and verse 5, he says, we had fightings without and fears within as we thought of you people. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 4 about this painful letter, he says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many, many tears. Discouraged. But he hears good news from the church. But even after hearing the good news about the vast majority of people are standing by the gospel and they've turned from those who teach a different gospel, a different Jesus, and advocate a different spirit, Paul says, he still writes this letter out of pathos and pain as he talks about his life and his ministry. But he says this in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, as I read that, I, you know, the, the question is, why, why did Paul not lose heart? How did Paul fight discouragement? And it says a lot to us about how we can fight discouragement. So I'm going to mention three things. One reason Paul fought discouragement is this. He realized that his labor in the Lord was never in vain. In Galatians 6, he writes this, he says, And let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Therefore, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who belong to the household of faith. But in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, after he's gone through this long statement about the glory of the resurrection of Christ and the fact that Christ rose from the grave historically and physically and it was real and it's not, he said that's of first importance. And then he says, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. And he says in this book, 2 Corinthians, I just love these first few chapters especially. He says, chapter 5, verse 10, that we'll get to in weeks down the road. He says, 
for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. And verse 9 says this, so, so whether we are at home or, or, or away in the body, we make it our aim to please him because we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. God knows God's going to reward. God is God. Your labor is never in vain. There's a book called The Two Towers by J.R.R. Tolkien. And in the book, there is this wonderful king that's come back from the abyss named King Theoden. And he and a handful of men are battling at Helm's Deep against myriad and myriad of orcs. And the cards are stacked against them. It's not going well for them. And so King Theoden, in, in regal bravery, looks at his men, especially at Aragorn, and he says, the end will not be long, but I will not end here taken like an old badger in a trap. When the dawn comes, I will ride forth. Maybe we shall cleave a road or make such an end as will be worth a song if any be left to sing of us hereafter. Well, I like that. Maybe we'll cleave a road through the orcs. And if any of us survive, maybe they'll sing a song about us hereafter. You see, hear the conditions there? Now, it's, just good, it's good stuff. Right after that, though, right after that, and, and he says, Aragorn, will you ride with me? And he said, King, I will ride with you anywhere. But right after that, Oregon go, or, uh, Aragorn goes outside. I'm not going there yet. And he jumps up on the wall and he looks at all these orcs. Can't even number them. And, and he, sa he says to them, he says, no enemy has ever taken Hornburg. Depart. Or not one of you will be spared. Not one of you will be left alive to take back tidings to the north. You do not know your peril. Listen to this. Next paragraph. So, so great a power and royalty was revealed in Aragorn, who will become the king. Aragorn is a man. If you're pregnant, name your son Aragorn. <laughs> Seriously. Or Bilbo. Either one. It works. Or Samwise. I mean, really, you could, you, you, you can do. Anyway, so, so great a power and royalty were revealed in Aragorn as he stood there alone above the ruined gates before the host of his enemies, that many of the wild men paused and looked back over their shoulders to the valley, or some looked up doubtfully at the sky. And what, what, see, the difference between Theoden as great as, he says, maybe if. Aragorn says, man, you guys better leave. They're just us. This is the Alamo times 30, but there's just us. You won't live. You're going down. I like Aragorn. 
I say, you know, you look around and really you, you look around the culture indicators and they are not good. And you look around and you go this, and, you, and, and but you say this, there's a certainty in our spirit because we say this, the king of all glory has said, I am building my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we serve good King Jesus who reigns victorious. He is the king. And so we, we don't, yeah, it's tough. But we don't grow ultimately discouraged, which is all about the second part of 2 Corinthians 4. We'll get there, but we don't grow ultimately discouraged. See, even the bad news often has good news behind it, but you don't hear. And sometimes the bad news just has bad news. A couple of examples. My heart has been breaking for the church in Egypt, for the church in Pakistan, where just where two weeks ago today, three weeks ago, somebody walked into a worship service and blew themselves up and killed 70-some people. We break about this, this mall in Nairobi, Kenya, where people took the mall crying out, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, great is Allah. And then they asked somebody, Do you, can you name Allah's mother? No. Boom, they shot him. Sixty-some killed. But, but, but what they don't tell you behind the news is this. Listen to me. The church in the Islamic world today has never grown more than it's growing right now. It's not a tidal wave, but it's growing. See, God is building his church. And as to quote Irenaeus of old, and, and, and the martyr's blood is seed to the faith. Sometimes the bad news is just bad news. I think about our culture. I think about a study done by a sociologist from Notre Dame named Christian Smith about 20 years ago. And Christian Smith interviewed hundreds and hundreds of young people, many of them church and evangelical churches. And he said, these children who become adults in a few years, and they have, believe in what he calls a morally therapeutic deistic God. They believe there is a God. He's good. You don't have to have him involved in your life. And when you die, if you're good, you go to heaven, which is not the gospel, by the way. He says, if that's the mindset and they grow up to be adults, they'll have no compass to go by. And we've, we're seeing that in their culture. The bad news is the bad news. Let me tell you, say this. You know, God is building his church. And God, God brings revival and God brings renewal and God, God builds this church. Listen, listen to Paul's incredible confidence. Listen, chapter 1, verse 14, he says this. He says, on, on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because of this, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first. You see, the, I wanted to come to you. Because you're going to boast of me, I'm going to boast in you. There's a great day coming and God is building his church. So don't be discouraged. The second thing is, we, we, we don't be, grow discouraged because... We have continually renounced, and we do renounce, verse 2, the disgraceful, underhanded ways. We don't grow discouraged because we're people of God. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but as, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So we, we don't grow discouraged because we... We've renounced, and we continually renounce underhanded, disgraceful ways. We don't tamper with the Word of God. 
to make it say what we want it to say. We just speak it. We speak it, Paul says, chapter 1, verse 12, we speak it with the simplicity and godly sincerity that comes from heaven. Just, we speak it with simplicity and, and godly sincerity. We don't, we don't do disgraceful, underhanded things. For example, just on a broader context, um, in our culture, you read about Detroit, you read about the state of Illinois, you read about Kentucky, some of these states, their pensions are, fun, it's, it's gone, it's gone. And I was just, I don't know much about pensions, but I was just reading this magazine that says this, elected officials knew that by the time benefits came due, they would be out of office. Union officials knew it too. Once benefits were agreed to, cities and states chose to skimp on funding pensions. Politically, it was always preferable to build the extra school or to staff the additional fire station than to squirrel away more pension money for retirees. And I thought, that's underhanded. I read about a well-known governor who was in office, and his staff came to him and said, uh, if we don't do something with the pension fund, it will dry up for, for firemen and, and policemen in 10 years. It's going to be gone. We've got to do some dramatic, drastic steps, or what we advise you to do, Governor, is to do nothing about it. Because when it dries up in 10 years, your successor or your successor's successor will be in office. And thankfully, that Governor said, that's not integrity. That's not honesty. And he bit the bullet and did the hard thing. That's why we say it's politically, politically expedient, see? And the same thing happens with, with, with Scripture. That's what Paul says. We don't, we don't tamper with God's Word. We, we just speak it with sincerity and truth. If you ever fly in the airlines and you hear this time after time, wherever you go, do not tamper with the smoke detecting device in the laboratory. If you do tamper with the smoke detecting device, you'll be penalized under the full penalty of the law. So that's the only time I've ever heard the word tamper other than right here. Don't mess with it. See, if somebody tampers with a smoke detecting device on your jet flying 10 hours, that, that's bad because that could have incredible effects on the safety of their co-passengers. But if somebody tampers with Scripture, with the apostolic message of the cross, which is what the false prophets were doing in Paul's day and in ours, they deserve full exposure. And that's why 2 Corinthians is written. Stand by the word. Don't tamper with it. Because if you don't tamper with it, you can say, we've renounced it, and you're not discouraged. This man is named John Broadus. That's a young John Broadus. John, John Broadus died in 1895. He was um, from Culpeper, Virginia. One of the first members of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary faculty. One of the first three members. Uh, an incredible man. Great, great theologian. Great preacher. Uh, preached to the Army of Northern Virginia. 5,000 men at a time. One of Stonewall's favorite guys. And after the war, he was one of the chief spokesmen for 
full or reconciliation between the north and the south. Just read some of his stuff. Just Google what he said about reconciliation between the north and the south. A, a, a godly man. Died at the age of 67, 68. He was president of Southern Seminary after his best friend died, who was the president, J.P. Boyce. But, but he died in March of 1895, and, and two weeks before he died, he gave an address to a group of men at Southern Seminary. And he says this. He says, young, young men, if this were the last time I should ever be permitted to address you, I will feel amply repaid for consuming this whole hour and endeavoring to impress upon you two things, true piety and be like Apollos, men mighty in the Scripture. True piety, heartfelt devotion and prayer and being mighty in the Scripture. And then it says, then pausing, he stood for a moment with his piercing eyes fixed upon us and he repeated over and and over again, a slow but wonderfully impressive style peculiar to himself. Mighty in the scriptures. Mighty in the scriptures. Until the whole class seemed to be lifted through him into the, a sacred nearness to the master. And that's what, that's what Paul's saying here. He says, you know, we, because of the message, we have renounced shameful and disgraceful and underhanded and politically expedient means, we speak the truth sincerely. And then I think the, the key phrase here is this. We, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience listen, in the sight of God. Paul says we do everything in the sight of God. We commend our, ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, now listen to me. The conscience is the intuitive decision-making apparatus in your psyche whereby you make decisions. The Bible says in Romans 2 that, that every man and woman has certain standards written on their heart. We intuitively know that certain things are right and wrong. But then your, 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 your knowledge is either deadened or heightened by your commitment to what you believe. See, so our, our conscience should be heightened by the Word of God as it's built up in our lives and by experiences as we see them through the lens of Scripture, as we're mighty in Scripture. As, as the scripture teaches. So when somebody says to you, well, I have a clear conscience, that could be good or bad. In, in Acts 24, Paul says, I labor. I labor to have a clear conscience toward God and toward man. So I, I, I labor to do that. But conversely, in, in, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says that, that these people have a seared conscience or their conscience has been so messed with they can't think rightly when it comes to moral truth and then in ephesians chapter 4 it says this verse 18 that they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts you see either our hearts become soft and pliable to the word of god or it becomes hardened and calcified to his voice so just to say I have a clear conscience, really, that may or may not mean, mean anything. I saw this movie a few years ago. It's a powerful movie. If you've never seen it, I would encourage you to see it. It's a story about a concentration camp in Germany in World War II. It's the boy in the striped pajamas, and those two little boys 
our nine-year-old children, they become friends. The boy in the striped pajamas is a Jewish child. The boy in the uh, shirt and sweater vest is the son of the commandant of the concentration camp. The story goes like this, that there's this concentration camp with black smoke billowing from the chimneys. And about a mile from the concentration camp, in this beautiful house, in this lovely setting, pastoral setting, lived the commandant's family, his wife, his daughter, teenage daughters, and his nine-year-old son. And so the commandant would get up in his orderly house every day, have breakfast with his family, kiss his wife and children goodbye, get in his chauffeured car, go to the camp, and oversee the annihilation of hundreds or thousands of Jews every day. At the end of the day, he would get back in his car and go back to his family and get out and greet his wife and his children, have a wonderful supper as they listened to Bach or Mozart or Beethoven and talked about their life. And they had servants that were wearing striped pajamas, but they just thought they were household servants and they were going back to the concentration camp or the prison camp. And as, as I, it's an incredible story, but as, as, I, as I watched the show, I thought, you know, how, how, how can a person live with himself? in overseeing the mass murder of tens of thousands of people and then get back in his car and, and go back to his house, the orderly house, clean house, wife and children who know nothing about what's going on in the movie, know nothing, and listen to Bach, listen to Mozart. And, and the issue is the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. So Paul says we, we, we appeal to every man's conscience in the sight of God and we live according to the word of God in the previous verse. He said that that's the way you get a clear conscience. It's in the sight of God. And the, see, in this passage, he also renounces, he renounces because of what he said in the previous paragraph that is tied to this statement. He says he, he renounces because of verse 18 where, where he writes this. He says, and, and, and we who with unveiled faces are all continuously beholding the glory of God are being transformed into his likeness from glory to glory, which comes to the Lord who is the Spirit. He says, we, we renounce, we renounce because we want to continuously behold the glory of Christ and be changed. Now hear this, a breakthrough comes in our lives from day to day. month to month, whatever, when we continuously understand that my joy and my desire for purpose and dignity and hope and the glorification of God are one and the same, when you get hold of that, the hounds of hell tremble. But if you don't get hold of that, see, my desire for, for joy and purpose and dignity and hope and the glorification of God in the person of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit are one and the same. So the, the first commandment, no gods before me, is my pathway to liberty. It's, it's my pathway to victory. That, so, so as we renounce and as we speak with, with sim simplicity and godly sincerity, we experience the empowering presence of the Lord, and we're not discouraged. Do, do, do you understand? See, I, I go over this little statement at least once, once a month, usually every week. 
I'm saying, I want to so worship the living God that I see hell break apart at my feet as I live with Christ-like joy and apostolic certainty for the glory of God, the future generations, and my welfare. I just love that. For the glory of God, the coming future generations, and my welfare. That's a breakthrough. I was reading Isaiah this week. Isaiah 34 talks about the judgment coming, and then 35 talks about the restoration, what the ransom will experience. Listen to this. Verse 5. When, when God's restoration process comes, when Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Verse 8, and a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way even if they are fools they shall not go astray just stop there it says even if they're fools doesn't mean that they're fools it means simple-minded people like me even the simple-minded who don't understand all the ins and outs of philosophical arguments and haven't read Immanuel Kant or Martin Heidegger or you know, Husserl, you know, just the people that pick up the word and say, there is a God and he has spoken. I'm going to walk here by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of the name of Jesus. Even the simple shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and signs shall flee away. Now, that's fulfilled in heaven, I know. But, but the reality of that can be tasted here. I want to be on that highway. And therefore, I, I want to renounce everything that is disgraceful and underhanded and anything that tampers with the Word of God. And I want to live with a, a godly sincerity and simplicity. I want my yes to be yes, my no to be no, and I just want to be driven by the reality of Christ. And if I do that, I don't grow discouraged. If I do that, I experience the empowering presence of Christ. If I do that, I step back and I say, like Paul says in chapter 3, verse 18, and we who with unveiled faces, as we continuously behold the glory of God, are being transformed. From glory to glory by the Lord who is the Spirit. Don't be discouraged. The third thing in this passage that I see about discouragement is we don't grow discouraged because we understand the veiling and the unveiling process. Now bear with me here. Verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, covered, Going back to chapter 3. It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded 
the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So that's the veiling. But there is an unveiling. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, we don't go discouraged. We don't lose heart because we understand the veiling and the unveiling process. We understand that the unveiling takes place when the gospel is preached and Christ is seen. Therefore, we preach the gospel. Therefore, we live the gospel. We also understand that there is a veiling process. Now listen to me, a veiling process where Satan veils eyes so they cannot see the light of the gospel. What unlocks that key? The gospel does. We, we preach it. See, so, some of us, if, if our, uh, someone we were praying for, we care for somebody in our family or our neighborhood, our job, if we, we, we go to them and we say to them, you know, I want you to once again hear me. I want you to trust the work of Jesus on the cross as your substitute. I want you to trust him, especially your children. They'll say, well, no, I'm, I'm not there. And if you say to them, why? Why? You know the biblical answer? They're not going to say this. The God of this world has blinded my eyes to the glory of Jesus. I love my sin more than I love the gospel. I love my willful ways more than I love the gospel. So what do we do in response to that? We say, well, we keep preaching the gospel. We keep loving them. We keep holding up Christ. We keep saying, it's a simple message, but it's profound. In the fullness of time, the God who is eternal God became a man and fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial law and died on the cross for our sin. He was prophesied for centuries, and he came, and his name is Jesus. And he rose victorious over death to show that he was God in the flesh. Do you hear me? And, you know, as you preach the gospel, God uses that to, to unlock the lock. See, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? He says, just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness in Numbers, and everybody who had been snake-bitten looked at the snake and didn't die in the Old Testament, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. We lift up Christ. And as we do that, we say this, God's call has to unlock before they believe. God's call precedes faith. The reason you've trusted Christ is because God called you by name and worked in your heart. And we pray does that to a vast host of people all around us. Glory in the gospel. And understand the, see if you understand the veiling and the unveiling process, it makes you gospel saturated and it helps you love people. Why don't, why don't your friends believe? It's not because they're not smart. It's because God has to work in their hearts. So pray God work in their hearts. God's call precedes their faith. Now let me say this. Just this verse. We know it. You know it well. If you've been a Christian more than six months, you've probably heard it several times. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And just, okay, but listen to me. I meet people all the time, and I say to them, what saves you? They say, my faith. Well, I, I believe these, these postulates about God. I'm saying, well, yeah, but, but why, why do you believe? What's the word? Grace. Sometimes I fear that we're making faith a works. It's something that I muster up and know. For by grace, God works in your heart to give you faith. Let's get the gospel. Let's understand the veiling and the unveiling process. Pray for people that don't know Jesus and preach the gospel. You know what's interesting? I've had the privilege of traveling to different places and speaking to missionaries or pastors from this summer, spoke to a group of pastors, about 25 pastors from northern Africa. And many of them came from Muslim backgrounds. The vast majority did. And their lives are on the line right now, right now, especially the guys in Egypt and the guys in Algeria. Anyway, so speak to them time after time. Time after time in, 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 in Muslim areas, how did you come to know Christ? And you'll hear this frequently. doesn't happen here as much as I'm aware of. I had a dream. I, I had a dream that someone would tell me about the true God, and they would come to my village either with a, with a book or I, I had a vision of, of a man in white robes who forgave my sins somehow, but I had a dream. Without fail, though, somebody came to their village, handed them a track, handed them a Bible, preached the gospel. They heard a radio broadcast. I've, I've never had anyone say to me, I had a dream that there was a triune God who was eternal. In the fullness of time, the second person's triune God became a man. He was supernaturally born, lived a perfect life, died on the cross of my sins, rose victorious over death, is living in heaven right now, interceding for me. And one day he'll come to judge the living and the dead and he'll call history to a close. And if I trust in the work of this man on the cross for my sins, I'll be saved. They didn't say that. So we have to teach them that. That's why we go. That's why we sin. That's why we have radio broadcast. That's who we are. The gospel is communicated by the power of the Spirit, and people believe. The veil falls. They see the glory of Jesus. I said last week, are you seeing the glory of Jesus? Are we renouncing, renouncing? disgraceful, underhanded ways. Is our yes, yes, and our no, no? Do we just speak with broken, godly sincerity and simplicity? What's God asking you to do? I'm reading through Acts, came this incredible story of Paul's conversion. It said Paul was breathing out murderous threats to the church, imprisoning people, giving hearty approval to the stoning of Stephen, Paul, bad. He's going to Damascus. A light shines around him and he falls to the ground. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Whom you're, you're, you're persecuting me, my body. 
so he can't see. And the Lord says, go, and I'll deal with you. And so he goes to Damascus. He can't see. And there's this simple, we don't even know what the guy did. He may have been sitting at home putting together a, a crib for his new, almost born baby. Name is Ananias. And the Lord appears to Ananias and he says to Ananias, Ananias, yes, Lord. I've got a job for you. Well, Lord, yeah, whatever you say, I'm here. Drop your tools. You listen. He says, I want you to go to Straight Street off of I-25 in Damascus. Take a left at the Jiffy Loop. Straight Street. Go three houses down to the left. There is a guy there fasting and praying who's blind and when you touch him and pray for him, the scales will fall from his eyes. I want you to be with him and minister to him and care for him. Okay, Lord. Uh, Lord, what's, what's the guy's name? Saw of Tarsus. He said, excuse me, Lord. The same guy that's been murdering, imprisoning, that Saw of Tarsus, that's the one. You know what Ananias said? Nothing. He saluted. I'd have said, are you sure? Are you sure, Lord? Maybe send Dean. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm busy. You know, I, uh, see, here, here's the question I ask myself as I read this. What is God, what is God, as you read the scripture, what is God impressing you to do? I call it the Ananias factor, something that's just hard. It is just hard. It's outside of our comfort zone. A conversation, a letter, a phone call, a visit to somebody that has maybe spurned the gospel. Or you've had, what is God calling you to do? So Paul says we continually renounce. See? Hmm. Lord, thank you for the day you've given us, and thank you for the, just the, the privilege of opening up 2 Corinthians and knowing it's a word from you. And I, I pray that by the Holy Spirit we make application, that we would do that which you've called us to do, that we would be people um, who just say we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways which tampers with the word of God. Instead, we just speak with godly simplicity and sincerity. We're just simple people with a glorious message. In Jesus' name, amen.